feel a little bit like John Piper moving this thing to the side. Um, I was reminded of my days at Bethlehem singing, all is for your glory, so thank you for that. I, we don't sing that at High Point, and so it was encouraging to, to sing that. I haven't sung that in, in many years, so great song. It's a privilege for me to be here with you this morning, uh, so thank you to, to the elders and to you as a church. Uh, it is a joy to be with you. Uh, I'm an associate pastor, as was said. Uh, my wife and children are right there, uh, and so we'd love to, to talk to you and meet some of you after the service. Um, but on behalf of High Point Baptist Church, on, on behalf of Pastor Juan and the other elders, uh, we're grateful to God for you. When I think about, there's plenty of churches in Austin that preach the gospel and that we're thankful for, but there are some churches that um, there's a like-mindedness there's a unity. And so when I think about Millwood Baptist Church, I know that you guys have the same instincts, the same philosophy of ministry, the same theology. And so I know, okay, how they're carrying out their mission over there where we are today and where we carry out our mission over in kind of Northeast Austin, there's a like-mindedness. I know that we're going to get kind of the same thing in both places. And so it is a joy for me to be here. Um, all right. So we read all of 3 through 14. My plan is to preach mainly through verses 9 through 14. And so we'll, we'll kind of give some context in 3 through 18, but, or 3 through 8, but 9 through 14 is really where we're going to spend the, the bulk of our time this morning. So I want to open with a question. Do you ever struggle to find the right words to pray, especially for others? Perhaps you sit down at the dinner table, you begin praying, and all, you're all too aware that your words sound almost identical to the words you prayed the night before, and maybe the night before that, and maybe the night before that. Maybe you're called to pray for a missionary or a church planner at a prayer service or in your small group, and you try and pray for them something spiritual, something God-honoring, but the words kind of fall flat as they leave your mouth. Maybe in your personal times of prayer and Bible reading, do you feel sometimes shallow and inarticulate, like you, you can't find the right words to pray big things on behalf of yourself and the people you love. Well, my point this morning is not to make you feel guilty, uh, to put any unnecessary burdens on you, and to, to police your language in prayer. That's not my goal. We all fall into ruts in our spiritual life and in our prayer life. Moreover, I don't want to just coach you and give you some vocabulary so that your prayers sound more authentic and and so that they, they sound more spiritual to people around you. Instead, my hope is that in the next few minutes, I want to show how gospel-advancing prayers for others flow out of a heart that's captivated by God and by His gospel. And so, if we want to pray the same kinds of big prayers we see in Scripture, the kind of prayers that Paul prays for the advance of the gospel, we must start by being gripped by the same gospel that gripped Paul. So go ahead, and if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Um, we'll be looking at 9 through 14, but I want to start with the context of the book of Colossians for just a few minutes. I trust you're, you're familiar with this book, uh, but just to set the context, verses 3 through 8, uh, as was already read, we always thank God, verse 3, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God 
in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians sometime around 60 AD from prison, probably in Rome. And unlike many of Paul's other letters, he's writing to this church that he hasn't actually met in person. In uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all those who I haven't met face to face. And so Paul is, is praying for this church that he hasn't actually met. The book of Acts kind of chronicles Paul's missionary journeys where he goes throughout the, the Mediterranean world planting and strengthening churches. Uh, and he spent two years in nearby Ephesus, but Paul didn't actually make his way to Colossae. And so as we saw in verses 3 through 8, Epaphras, a fellow worker of Paul, is the one who brought the gospel to the Colossians. And so it's very likely Epaphras was converted under Paul's ministry and then took the gospel and founded the church there in Colossae. And so Epaphras is described as a co-worker, a minister alongside Paul. And so Paul is writing to this church he has not visited, and he's encouraging them to hold fast to Christ. It seems that some type of false teaching has infiltrated the church, and Paul is, is trying to remind the Colossian believers that if they have Christ, they have everything that they need to be saved and to grow in Christ. So Paul is holding up the preeminence of Christ in the book of Colossians, both his exalted status, the person of Christ, that he is before all things, in him all things hold together, that in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And he's also trying to uphold the, the work of Christ, that it's by Christ's work on the cross that believers have everything that they need. All right, so uh, as we kind of move into verses 9 through 14, I want us to see, as the Apostle Paul models for us, how gospel-advancing prayer for others flows out of a heart that is captivated by God and his gospel. All right, so if we want to see prayer for the gospel to go forth, we want to see prayer for Christians to grow and mature, prayer for churches to be planted, it has to flow from a heart that's captivated by God and his gospel. And so we'll see this play out in verses 9 through 14 in four ways. First, how Paul prays. Second, what Paul prays. Third, the goal of Paul's prayer. And then fourth, the ground of Paul's prayer. So, you know, later on today, tomorrow, if you, you can't remember everything about this sermon, try and just remember those four words, how, what, goal, and ground. And those will be kind of our structure to move through this text. And so I think as you hear those four words, they'll kind of jog your memory as to what we talked about. But by the end of our time, I hope you'll see how every aspect of Paul's prayer, from how he prays to what he prays to the, the goal that he prays for to the ground of his prayer, all of it is influenced and controlled by the gospel. All right, so let's look first at how Paul prays. How does Paul pray for others in this text? How should we go about praying for others in our lives? Well, look at verse 9. I want you to see how Paul connects this section to the previous paragraph. So in verse 9, Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Other translations begin verse 9 with the words, for this reason, right, which, which draws the connection even tighter between 3 through 8 and our text today. 
So Paul is saying, and so for this reason, because of all these encouraging things going on among you, therefore we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul has already thanked God for the Colossians' faith in the Lord Jesus. He's thanked God for their love for all the saints. He's thanked God that the gospel is increasing and bearing fruit among them as it does throughout the whole world. And now he says his prayer is that uh, they would be motivated by this thankfulness and they would increase in that. I wonder if that's surprising to you at all. Aren't we normally driven to pray by difficult circumstances, by, by trouble in our lives or the lives of those around us? Aren't we driven to pray by anxieties and concerns about the future? And don't get me wrong, obviously all of those things are, are good and right to pray for. But Paul gives us an example of what it looks like to pray for God's work to increase and to multiply, right? As one person puts it, Paul is greedy for the Colossians' growth, right? So he's, he's thanking God for what he's already done in their lives, and he's praying, God, do so more and more. You know, when, when God seems to be working in a church or in an individual's life, that's not the time to ease up on the accelerator, that's the time to, to pray that God would do so more and more, right? That he would, that he would preserve and protect and, and continue to grow that work that he's already started. So we should be looking out for those who, by God's grace, are demonstrating faith, hope, and love, and we should ask God to continue that work in their lives. But notice also Paul's constancy in prayer. And so, verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul has been constant in prayer for these Colossian believers who he hasn't actually ever met in person. I don't know about you, but that, that's convicting to me when I think about how lazy I am to pray even for believers that I do know. And Paul is constant in his prayers for this church he hasn't ever met. Obviously, I don't think Paul means that he literally spent every waking moment praying on behalf of the Colossians, but he's saying, I pray regularly every day, and when I do, I'm constantly bringing you before the Lord and praying on your behalf. In chapter 2, Paul mentions the great struggle that he engages in on behalf of the Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea and for all who've not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so when Paul says he struggles on behalf of the Colossians in chapter 2, he means he struggles in prayer. He's in prison, but he can still struggle on their behalf in prayer. And notice at the end of Colossians, chapter 4, Paul mentions Epaphras, the one who planted the church there in Colossae. And he uses the example of Epaphras as one who struggles in prayer. Verse 12 of chapter 4, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Paul's saying, I'm constantly praying for you. Epaphras is struggling on your behalf in prayer. So when we take seriously the weighty spiritual realities of the gospel, you know, we're, we're dealing with heaven and hell. We're dealing with the Son of God coming to earth to save sinners and to reconcile him to himself. We recognize we're utterly unable to bring about any spiritual good in people's lives apart from God's grace. And when we realize that, it drives us to be constant in prayer. It drives us to realize, I need fresh grace today 
to do what you've called me to do. I need, I need you to act today in my church, in my small group, in my family, and unto the ends of the earth if your glory is going to be spread across the globe. All right, so that's how Paul prays, but secondly, let's look at what Paul prays. So what does Paul pray for the Colossians? How does the gospel inform what we should pray for other believers? This is really the the main request that Paul is asking in this passage. So the second part of verse 9, Paul gives the content of what he's praying for the Colossians. So verse 9, Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul is asking God to fill the Colossians with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the what of his prayer. But why would Paul need to make this request? Why would the Colossians, and by extension, you and I and believers today in the 21st century, why would we need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Many of us have probably heard God's will described as this nebulous, ethereal thing that you can, you know, walk in and out of, and your job as a Christian is to try and discover God's will for your life, you know, that perfect will that you can walk in and out of, and so your job is really to to set out fleeces or, or to pray hard enough, and then maybe God would reveal to you the exact path that your life should take. Um, but I imagine if, if you studied the will of God for any length of time, and I know that with the good teaching you receive here at Millwood, you probably understand that's not usually the best way to think about God's will. That really, in Scripture, God's will is, is very plain and obvious. God's will for our lives is what he's revealed in the words of Scripture. We know God's will for our life, not as we, we seek some mystical experience where God leads us to what he wants us to do next. We find God's will for our life as we see his desires revealed in the pages of, of the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Right, so if you want to know God's will, it's your holiness, that you would control your passions and your members and that you would be sanctified and holy. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to know God's will? It's, it's to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks in every circumstance. You know, those are, those are passages that talk about God's will, but God's will is, is everything that he's revealed in Scripture. Other passages that we could compare with this in chapter 1 of Colossians are Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, Romans 12, verse 2, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. We won't look at those this morning. But the question still remains, why do we need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If God's will is plain, if it's obvious from the pages of Scripture, then what is Paul really asking in this request? I think Paul is saying we need not a merely intellectual understanding of God's will as it's revealed in Scripture, though of course we do need that. Rather, we need God-given wisdom and insight to know how God's will, which is revealed in Scripture, it's inerrant, it's perfect, how that should shape and direct our lives in the very practical details of everyday life. Often, it's not that hard to interpret what a given passage of Scripture means. In other words, it's not always that hard to understand what the author is trying to communicate. Obviously, some places in Scripture are more difficult, some are less, but 
Often the meaning of a text is fairly obvious on the surface. But once we press forward to consider the implications of that text for our life and what it might look like for it to be lived out and to embraced, well, that's where the difficulties abound, right? So consider just a few examples. Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm sure you've heard that verse before, right? We know from the Gospels, well, who is my neighbor, right? But the questions could, could just be multiplied. You know, which neighbors? The ones on either side of my house? What about the ones, you know, going outward from there? And when do I love them? How do I love them? In what ways do I love them? And what about the other commands that you give me? To love your neighbor as yourself, that's a broad, all-encompassing command. And so we need wisdom and insight to know God, how should that look today, June 20th, 2021, in my life, right? I, I know I'm supposed to be obedient to that command, but I need, I need spiritual, God-given insight to know what that looks like practically. Often we, we focus on the, the prohibitions in Scripture, and so it's, it's pretty easy to know if you haven't murdered someone, you know, and if you haven't committed adultery. But the positive commands in Scripture it's much harder to know, okay, how does this work its way out in the details of my life? Think about another example, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It, it doesn't get much broader than that. Let's do good to everyone, starting here with the church and then outward to the whole world. Okay, well, you know, what, what is that supposed to look like? You know, God, give me some wisdom and grace to know doing good is, is such a broad category. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you're a, a father, or by extension, parents, fathers and mothers, you're to raise your children to know and love the Lord. And you have, give or take, 18 years with them, right? So 18 years multiplied by 365 days, you know, do the math. But this command right here is just a banner over all of those days. What does that look like on Saturday morning? What does that look like on Wednesday night? The days are evil, right? The days creep away, and before you know it, you've, you've frittered them away. And so we need God-given insight to know how God's will, which sometimes is operating at 30,000 feet in the air, how does that meet me in my particular situation here in Austin, Texas, here in the Millwood area, you know, right here next to the Domain, next to Millwood Austin Library. You know, what, is, what does that look like here? All right, so what does this mean for us practically? Well, first, it does mean we need a deep acquaintance and familiarity with God's Word, right? We have to make it our, our daily work to know more of God's Word. So even though I think Paul is, is calling for more than just reading Scripture, he certainly is not calling for less. And so we, we can't be obedient to a word that we don't know. But second, we cannot stop with merely knowing Scripture, as important as that is. We need God to graciously give us divine insight, wisdom, understanding, so that we know how God's word should take shape in our life, how it should take obvious form in the everyday aspects of life. We cannot stop at merely reading his word, even as important as that is. We must meditate upon it. We must consider deeply what the implications are. 
We must pray that God would direct us to know how to act out his word and then to, to have the power to do what God's word says. So do you make it your regular practice to pray that God would give you divine wisdom and insight into the implications of what you're reading every morning in your Bible? And do you pray for others that they would not only be growing in reading Scripture, but that they would be gaining spiritual insight, wisdom, in how the text relates to their lives? That they would have spiritual perception to understand how this word that they're reading should work out in the practicalities of life. I think that's what, what Paul is after, what he's praying for with these believers in Colossae, and I think that's a, a prayer that we can all pray for ourselves even this morning. All right, so we've seen the, the how and the what of Paul's prayer, but third, let's look at the goal of Paul's prayer. What is Paul hoping that God will bring about in the lives of the Colossians? All right, so if we've seen the content, verse 10 provides the goal that's motivating this prayer for spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul prays, verse 9, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So Paul shares the same view that all the biblical writers do, which is that the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his will, is not meant to, to stay at the merely intellectual level. It's to impact our walk in the world, how we, we live out our discipleship to Jesus Christ. So it's, it's not of any benefit to be filled with the knowledge of God's will if it doesn't lead to actual outworking of that renewal of mind in acts of love and deeds of faith and in walking worthily of the gospel that has saved us. Again, we see how the gospel shapes what Paul prays for these believers. The gospel that saves unworthy sinners who aren't deserving of God's grace is the same gospel that does not allow them to wallow in their sin and their unrighteousness, but leads them to walk worthily of God. The gospel not only saves, it sanctifies. So while, while God declares us righteous and just apart from any works of the law, it is God's grace that then progressively works in us what is pleasing in his sight. One of the great goals of the gospel is that God would justify the ungodly by faith alone, and then he would conform them slowly in this life, but ultimately fully in the next life, into the image of his Son, so that they would stand pure and blameless before him. Paul's aim is that their walk would match who they already are in Christ, right? If you think about Colossians chapter 3, Paul says in verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So your life is already hidden with Christ in God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been united to him by faith and so your life is already there in heaven. Jesus has died and risen again and ascended to the Father's right hand. And so now your job is to, to live in accordance with who you already are in Christ. That is the message of sanctification in the New Testament. Be who you are in Christ. And so Paul is saying we're to, to live worthily of the gospel, not to make ourselves worthy, but to live out the life that's already hidden with Christ in God. 
And the rest of chapter 3 talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man, right? Living according to this new way of life that God has brought about. But back in chapter 1, in verse uh, 10, Paul says, not only that we would walk worthily, but that we would do so fully pleasing to him, right? That's just another way of talking about walking worthy of the Lord is to be fully pleasing to God. For the Christian, the opinion that ultimately counts before and above all others is God's. To walk worthily is to aim at pleasing God in all that we do, not trying to please ourselves, to do what's easiest, most comfortable, you know, the path of least resistance, and not trying to, to please others, to do what will gain the approval of others, right? As Christians, our goal is to, to please an audience of one, to, pre, to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking from experience, I know so many uh, difficult situations in pastoring when I'm, when I'm talking to people who are struggling, uh, you know, issues in marriage, uh, when I'm trying to offer people counsel, if people get this question right, if they're trying to please the Lord, everything else falls into place. You know, if they're, if they're wondering, okay, in this difficult marriage where if it were up to me, I would have already opted out. I would have, I would have gone for the divorce. But God, I, I want to please you. If they have that heart, well, it just makes my job so much easier. I'm there to, to try and encourage them, to move them along. But if they say, I don't know if I can do that. It's just hard. You don't know what I've been through. And so I, I really need a break. Well, then, then it becomes more challenging. And then you have to, to bring in other scriptures and you have to, to begin to, to help them. But when our, when our goal is to, to walk worthily and to please the Lord, then we'll be effective in, in what God is calling us to. But notice, Paul further explains what he means by walking worthy of the Lord. He provides four characteristics, four illustrations, if you will, about what it looks like to walk worthily. So in verses 10 through 12, he gives not an exhaustive list, but simply some examples of what it looks like to walk worthily and to please the Lord. And these are all participles, which just means they're all verbs with ing at the end. So we'll see kind of these four participles that are all that are all modifying what it looks like to walk worthily and to please the Lord. So uh, starting in verse 10, it says, bearing fruit in every good work, first. Second, increasing in the knowledge of God. Third, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. And then fourth, giving thanks to the Father. So again, this is not an exhaustive list, but Paul is just giving some different illustrations of what it looks like to walk worthily of the Lord. So first he says, bearing fruit in every good work. I don't think this should surprise us based on what we've already said this morning. Christians who walk worthily of the Lord and who please him are those who are bearing fruit. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is, is a passage we're probably all familiar with, that God saved us by his grace, and it's not by any works that we've done, but God saved us, and we're now his workmanship in Christ Jesus, which he created, which he saved us, so that we might walk in the good works that he's prepared for us. But notice how active and vigorous the language is. You know, producing fruit in every good work. The image here and throughout the rest of the New Testament is not, you know, max out my schedule and then if there's any spot at the margins to do good work. As Christians, we should be zealous to do good. We, should, we need spiritual wisdom and insight to know 
God, how can I do as much good to as many people as I can today? Obviously recognizing my limitations, that I'm finite, that I can't do all the good that I might want to do, but God, give me wisdom to know how can I do good to the people around me just as you've done the most good to me in Christ. So we should pray for ourselves, pray for others, asking God to reveal to us all the opportunities around us to do good, to give us the willingness and the ability to see them through. Oftentimes, we don't do as much good as we could because we're not sensitive and open to the opportunities around us. You know, what opportunities for good does Millwood Baptist Church have right here in this neighborhood? And so start just by praying and asking God, God, what are some opportunities that we have to do good right here where you've planted us? Do you think that's a prayer that God loves to answer? I think it is. But second, Paul also mentions increasing in the knowledge of God. I don't think Paul means here that the Colossians were increasing merely in intellectual or doctrinal knowledge about God, as important as that is. I think Paul is, is speaking primarily about an experiential knowledge of God, a, a knowledge of God that only comes in the give and take of relationship, that only comes as we're walking with God in obedience over time. The example I might use is, is Abraham, right, that Paul holds up in the New Testament as an example of faith to believers. But when you think about Abraham in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 12, when God calls him to go, what does Abraham know about God in Genesis 12? It seems next to nothing, right? God appears to Abram and says, go from your country and your kindred and everything you know to a land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham went. And Hebrew says he went not knowing where he was going, right? But when you think about Genesis 12 and you just read the chapters that come afterward going all the way up to Genesis 22 and God calling him to sacrifice the son of promise, Isaac, you know, Genesis, uh, he's, he's 75 when he leaves and by Genesis 22, he's 100 years old. Decades have passed. Do you think Abraham's knowledge of God has grown in that time? I think it has, right? And I, I don't think it's grown primarily by him sitting in a cave in Shechem, reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, right? It's grown in his experience of God, walking in faith, trusting the Lord, sometimes failing, sometimes moving forward, and in that give and take, him growing to a greater depth and experience of the Lord. I think that's what Paul is talking about here when he says to increase in the knowledge of God. We're not going to experience God as much as we could until we're walking with the Lord, until we're obeying the Lord, until we're even walking in faith, right? R risking things, you know, until we're, we're putting ourselves out there for God to show up in a mighty way. And when he does that, well, we have a new experience of God, something that we, we couldn't have known, even if we knew it notionally and intellectually before, now we know it experientially in a new way. All right, the third characteristic, he says, may you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. So why does Paul think the, the Colossians need to be strengthened for endurance and patience? Well, I think the, the most obvious reason is that they're going to experience opposition. If the world hated Jesus our Lord, 
how much more will it hate us, his disciples? And so, so Paul is, is praying for them to be strengthened because he knows opposition is coming, opposition is already there. And so he knows that the Colossians need to be strengthened with the same power that was at work raising Jesus from the dead. And Paul is saying, that same power is at work in you to strengthen you so that you might do all that God has called you to do. But there's also a need for endurance and patience just to live in this sin-cursed and fallen world, right? We experience suffering, not just persecution, but we experience health problems and we experience the fallenness of this world. We experience um, relational difficulties. We experience the need for patience even within the church, even among a group of saints. We have conflict. We have sin. And so we need to, to be patient with one another. We need God to, to strengthen us to do that. And then fourth and finally, giving thanks to the Father, verse 12. So the last characteristic Paul mentions regarding walking worthily and pleasing him is giving thanks to the Father. And this, this fits really well with chapter 3, verse 17, where Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so, Paul's praying that they would walk worthily of the Lord, that they would please him in every good thing. And he, he gives some examples of what that looks like, to bear fruit, to increase in the knowledge of God, to, to be strengthened for all endurance and patience, and to give thanks. And the giving thanks transitions us to, to the fourth and final aspect of Paul's prayer, which is the ground of Paul's prayer. What is the foundation of our prayer life? What, what grounded prayer for the Apostle Paul? From where does our prayer life spring forth, and where does it draw life? What is the fountain from which our prayers should spring? So notice, for Paul, the ground of his prayer life is thanksgiving. Starting in verse 12, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So the fountain from which Paul's requests flow, the wellspring of his intercession on behalf of the Colossians is thanksgiving. It's rooted in God's work on behalf of his people. Obviously, verse 3 of this passage started with God, or with Paul thanking God for his work among the Colossians. And now, at the end of his prayer, interceding for them, he wells up in thanksgiving for all that God has done. Consider how Paul calls the Colossians to join him in thanking God for the blessings that they enjoy through the gospel. There's kind of three main things that, that Paul highlights here. First, that they have a share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Secondly, that they've been delivered from Satan's dominion. They've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. And third, they have redemption and forgiveness in Christ. And so, for Paul, those aren't just throwaway lines at the end of his prayer. You know, as he's praying for them, as so often happens, Paul just kind of breaks out into doxology, into prayer, into thanksgiving. And here, he's no longer just talking about them, right? He says, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us. So now he's like, I can't just talk about you anymore. I've got to start bringing myself into this because God has he's not just saved you, he's delivered all of us from the domain of darkness and he's, he's transferred us to the kingdom of God's beloved son. And so 
Paul can't help but get excited when he thinks about the great work of redemption that God has done in his people's lives. So when our hearts have been gripped and captivated by this glorious gospel, praise and thanksgiving will be the natural and the regular overflow. Perhaps you've lost sight of the magnitude of what God has done for you in Christ. What we need is to to meditate on these wonderful realities, to return to the simple message of the cross, that we had a record of debt that stood against us. And there was no amount of good works that we could do to save ourselves, that God was perfectly just and good to condemn us to hell for breaking his holy and good law. And yet in his grace and mercy, he sent Jesus the one who existed before all creation. In him, all things hold together. And now he sent him to take on flesh. And in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells because it was only by sending God in the flesh that he could redeem us and draw us back and to cancel all that record of death that stood against us. So if you have lost sight of the magnitude of the gospel this morning, ask God to restore to you the joy of your salvation. But for some of you, I don't assume that everyone in a church building is a Christian. Some of you, perhaps you're not a Christian. Maybe you haven't been gripped and captivated by this gospel. The good news is that you can enjoy these great gospel blessings as well. By turning to Christ in repentance and faith, turning away from your sin, receiving the Lord Jesus and walking in him, you can enjoy a share in the inheritance that God has for the saints. You can be transferred from the domain of darkness into his beloved kingdom, you can be forgiven and redeemed of all your sins. So, gospel-advancing prayer for others, it flows out of a heart that's captivated, that's gripped by God and his gospel. So we've seen that as we've looked at how Paul prays, what Paul prays, the goal of Paul's prayer, and the ground of Paul's prayer. And so I've, I've tried to, to show for us how each of those aspects bear some relationship to the gospel, that Paul never moves away from the gospel, but that it's, it's the warp and the woof of everything that he says. You know, it's, it's, it's bound up with everything that he's praying for these Colossians. So because of Paul's passion for the gospel, because of his thankfulness to God for his work in redemption, his prayers are controlled and guided by this single overriding concern namely to to see the gospel spread, to bear fruit, to increase, to continue to work in the lives of more and more people. So we close here. Do you struggle to find the right words to pray? Do you find it difficult to know how to pray, to know what you should be asking for yourself, for other believers in the church? Allow Paul's example here to stir in your heart a desire to see his work afresh both in your own life and the lives of others. Remind yourself of the amazing gospel blessings that are true of you if you're in Christ. And let that thankfulness flow out as you intercede on behalf of yourself, your family, your church, and as you you even intercede for people you've never met, for Christians all around the world. And as you pray that God would advance his kingdom in the world, let thankfulness to God for the gospel be the wind in your sails that allows you to do that. Would you pray with me? Father, I do pray that the words of Paul's prayer here in Colossians 1 would be true for the saints here at Millwood Baptist Church. And God, I thank you that I, 
I have heard about the, their faith in, in the Lord Jesus, the love that they have for all the saints, and I, I thank you for the hope that's laid up for them in heaven. And I thank you that the word of truth, the gospel, has come to them, as indeed it is bearing fruit increasing throughout the world, that it's come to them and it's, it's bearing fruit and increasing in their lives. And I pray that you would allow that to take place more and more. And God, I ask now that you would fill these saints with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you. They would be bearing fruit in every good work, that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God, and that you would strengthen them with all power for endurance and patience with joy. Ultimately, that they would be giving thanks in every circumstances, understanding that you have saved them and delivered them and forgiven them of all their sins in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.